Your Bible, go ahead and Testament book, Romans, chapter 1. So this morning we're starting a series that will take us through the rest of the summer through the minor prophets. And you might be thinking, I didn't know Paul was a minor prophet. But I just, it's not. <laughs> but I just want to introduce the series we're going to be in, 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 a, in several different places this morning. I, I have to start somewhere and take a, take a cue from somewhere. And so I want to introduce the series just, and the idea just from these opening words <clears throat> from Paul in Romans. Like I said, but we'll look at several different places. And then we'll start next Sunday with the first minor prophet for our attention, which will be the prophet Joel. Joel. Uh, if you've never spent much time in the minor prophets... Uh, before one thing that's generally true about most of them is that they aren't long books hence minor prophets as opposed to major prophets like Isaiah Jeremiah Ezekiel much longer books some of them like Obadiah is just one chapter Uh, Haggai is two chapters several of them are just three chapters you know uh, Joel Habakkuk Zephaniah a couple of them are a little longer Um, Hosea and Zechariah are 14 chapters. Um, that's, that's as long as they get. I mean, that's even shorter than the book of Romans. So um, I'm, I'm telling you that. I'm telling you and reminding you how they're, they're, they're short, they're easy to read. I'm telling you that because it will be to your benefit as we move through the summer. It'll be really to your benefit if you come each Sunday having read each of the, the whatever the prophet we're going to study that, that particular day. And I'll let you know ahead of time. Which one that will be? Just like I told you, Joel is next week. Joel's three chapters. You could read that easily before next week. You could read it several times. You could read it once a day um, before next Sunday. That, that, would actually be, that would actually be pretty cool if you could read, read it several times, read it once a day, because you'll, you'll see things upon second and third and fourth reading that you didn't pick up the first time. So... Uh, that's one that's one thing it'll be to your benefit to come in here and have already read it and already thought about it before you hear what I say but the other thing um, is the reason I want to encourage you to read them ahead of time not just because you'll get more out of it when you're here but because we're going to try to cover a whole minor prophet every week and so by the very nature of it it's going to be like overviews and, and there's no way, there's no way even in Joel, three whole chapters, that we can read all of it and cover every detail uh, in, in one lesson. Certainly when you get to like Hosea, that's 14 chapters. We'll hit major themes and we'll see a lot, we'll cover a lot of scriptures within the book, but there's going to be a lot of things, a lot of details that we have to skip over for the sake of time. But even if I have to skip over it, if you've already read it, you haven't skipped over it. So that'll be good if you can do that. But today, so each week's going to be big picture. Today's going to be even bigger picture. Because I just want to introduce the series about the, and, and think big picture about the prophets in general, um, and more specifically the minor prophets, who they were, when they were, why they were, um, and what they, what, they, what they said, and how we ought to approach studying the minor prophets and understanding God's purpose in sending them. Uh, not only how they were relevant then, still relevant today. I think we'll get some of the idea of that relevancy today when we, I just want to read these opening words from Paul's letter to the Romans. So if you've already found Romans chapter 1, we're not going to refer to this again and again, but there is one particular verse in there that's 
worthy of our attention, and we'll, we will note it in time. Verses 1 through 6 is all I want to read. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. That does not, by the way, mean that Jesus became the Son of God at His resurrection. Note the words, declared to be the Son of God in power. It was prior to His resurrection, Jesus was in His state of humiliation and lowliness. But upon the resurrection, it says He's now exalted. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So, Son of God in power now. Verse 5 through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So this gospel, verse 1, the gospel of God, this gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in Holy Scripture. Therein alone lies the relevancy to think about today. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the, the privilege we have to gather week after week after week to study your word, and to hear your voice in it. Without, without it, there's not a thing I have to say that's of, um, that's of worth. There's, there's not a, all I have, apart from your word, is opinions. And why my, my opinion should be greater than anyone else's is, is not clear. <laughs> and so, but we, we thank you for that reason, that we have your word. It's an objective standard. It's, it's, a, it's an eternally authoritative, unchanging standard and voice that still speaks to us today so thank you for that thank you for this passage we just read thank you for all the other passages that we're going to consider today we recognize your word to be uh, inerrant and and inerrant because it's inspired of you the holy spirit and and therefore authoritative because it's your word through human authors and uh and it's sufficient and clear and necessary to us for without it we we're left with nothing like i said so father help us as we think about the prophets today we look at several different scriptures think about several different scriptures help us to see the truth in it help us to understand just as this is a more or less an overview of a lot of things and covering a lot of ground i pray that you would give us the help to to see things clearly and to, to not just understand a, a historical timeline but to see um, the spiritual significance and truth in it all. Father, give us minds to understand these things, heart to embrace all the truth that we see, and give us wills to obey all that we need to do, even if it's difficult things, help us to obey cheerfully. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, as we think about the prophets and get our, our bearings and about how to approach a whole series on the, on the minor prophets, I want us I to say some general things. Uh, but also take some of this truth that we just read Paul say in, in the opening uh, verses of Romans to understand their role better, to promise beforehand the gospel. I basically want to try to answer this morning two basic questions uh, about the minor prophets, really about prophets in general, 
of which the minor prophets are just a subset. So the first question I want us to, to think about is who, who and when were the prophets? Who and when? The office of prophet in the Old Testament is an enormous one. Uh, you, you can't, it wouldn't be right to talk about the minor prophets in abstract from the whole office of, of prophet. But it's, it's, a huge, it's a huge aspect, a huge office uh, and topic and theme in the Old Testament. So we have a bit of ground to cover. Who and when were the prophets? And we'll try to set the stage for the minor prophets that we're going to be studying this summer. And, uh, and like I said, we're, not, we're going to see that they're not a completely cat, separate category of their own in isolation from all the prophets in general. And the other writing prophets, the major ones too, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. So, who and when? And then secondly, why were they sent and what did they say? Why were they sent and what did they say? What purpose did God have in sending prophets and to send them with his words and what do they say that might that might um, seem like an almost impossible question to answer especially in brief Uh, but I want to try to get my cue from Paul here in Romans 1 and uh, try to put my finger on the main goal of all that they said in all that they said and hopefully by the end of this you'll you'll be ready to jump back in next week and think about our first prophet uh, on, the, on the deck is Joel. All right, and after him, all the others. So let's think first about who and when were the prophets. Who were the prophets? Well, like I said, that's a huge category in the, in the Old Testament. Um, the very first person in Scripture to be referred to as a prophet. Does anybody know who that is? Nope, good guess, though. Close. Abraham. Abraham. I don't think about it. Abraham as a prophet, but, uh, but, but think about it. Uh, remember the story in Genesis 20. In Genesis 20, uh, Abraham and his family were traveling, and they were, they were uh, going through the territory uh, in which a man named Abimelech was king. And to save his own skin, it's not the first time he had done this. He had done it already once in Genesis 12. But to save his own skin, Abraham lied about Sarah. To say, she's not my wife, she's just my sister. Right? He, say, he lied about that to save his own skin, because he thought, if they know that she's my wife, they'll kill me, and take her, Abimelech will take her to, to be one of his, his concubines. And uh, so he lied, this is my sister. Well, that didn't really help matters much, because Abimelech took her anyway. And, um, and, and God was merciful. Uh, he, 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 saved, he, he saved Abraham out of the mess he had made by his own lying. And to, to save him out of that, God sent Abimelech a dream before he had even touched Sarah. Before he had done anything to her, God sent him a dream. And, uh, and, and in that dream, told Abimelech, do not touch her because she's not his sister. She's his wife. And in Genesis 20, verse 7, it says, God says, Now then, to to Abimelech, Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he'll pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return to her, know that you shall surely die, and all who are yours. So God himself calls Abraham a prophet. Right there in Genesis 20, verse 7. But, that being the case, we still don't, that still doesn't define for us very much or very precisely 
what exactly a prophet is or what a prophet does other than God is with him in a special way. Okay? Mercifully, though, in Abraham's case, he really obviously wasn't a perfect man. But Abraham is the first guy to be labeled a prophet in Scripture. And from that, you just get that God is with these prophets in a special way, though it needs more definition as we move along in Scripture. The next guy, if you're just reading straight through the Bible, the next person to be uh, classified as a prophet is Aaron, Moses' brother Aaron. Uh, when, when, when God raised up Moses and his brother Aaron to lead the people out of Israel, and he and Aaron, Moses and Aaron, had to go to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. In Exodus chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, um, the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God, like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. So there, that's interesting. God tells Moses that he has made him like God. I have made you like God to Pharaoh. How, what does that mean? It, 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 in this context, it simply means he, God has put his very words into Moses. Um, but then words are into Moses, but Aaron would be the mouthpiece. Aaron would do the speaking, and hence he's the prophet. He's the one that's going to deliver the very words of God and to represent God to Pharaoh. But, it, but even though Aaron is called the prophet here, it is Moses. It's Moses in which we have the more def, definitive description of who a prophet is. Um, Moses is described as a prophet in Deuteronomy 18, a very important passage. Uh, Deuteronomy 18, verses 18 and 19, God promises, and he's promising through Moses, you have to look at this by inference, but Deuteronomy 18 Verse 18 and 19, God is speaking through Moses and he promises, I will raise up for them a prophet like you. So a prophet like you. So God is saying there, Moses was a prophet. And how, did, how is a prophet described here? How is Moses the prophet described? I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So Moses here is, is sort of uh, was, a, was a prophet that set the standard for all prophets here. Uh, a, pro, a prophet is, is one who receives the very words of God. There's going to be a lot that I cannot say here just for time's sake about prophets. I mean, there's all these, uh, uh, how do you tell a, a true prophet from a false prophet? But, but in, in general, the, a prophet is one who receives the very words of God and and. And when, when he speaks those words as the prophet of God, they come with the very authority of God, such that they are to be obeyed as God himself is to be obeyed. There's two reasons why Moses, in particular, is pivotal in our understanding of prophets here. Um, one, because he prefigured, he prefigured a greater prophet that was going to come. That's reason number one. Moses is, is a pivotal prophet in this sense, that he prefigured a greater prophet that was going to come. Again, right, right here in, in Deuteronomy 18, uh, there's the promise 
you know, that God was going to send another prophet like Moses. But look, look in, uh, in Deuteronomy 18, 15, just a few verses before that. Uh, God, says to, God says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. This is Moses talking. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. You can write, jot down the references. We don't have time to look at them. But it is that verse right there. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. It is that verse that is quoted twice in the New Testament, both times in Acts. In Acts 3.22 and in Acts 7.37 that identifies that Jesus is that prophet who was to come. And they quote that very verse. So when I say that Moses is pivotal because he prefigures a greater prophet to come, I don't say that because I just think so. I say that because the New Testament says so. Jesus is that greater prophet that Moses prefigured. It says to, so twice in Acts. So this greater prophet was fulfilled in Jesus that Moses prefigured. Jesus is that greater prophet to come. How is Jesus a greater prophet than Moses? Greater in that he did Jesus, when he came, he didn't just come with the words of God. He was God coming. He's greater in that way. Not just what he said, but who he was. Moses prefigured a greater prophet coming. That's one thing. And that's something that Aaron didn't necessarily do. But Moses did. And he did so because of the second reason Moses is important. Not just because he prefigured a greater prophet, but because of the signs and wonders that God did through Moses prefigured a greater kingdom. Through the signs and wonders that God did through Moses, it prefigured a greater kingdom. That's something that was unique about Moses that had not before then been seen. Abraham was a prophet, but there were no great signs and wonders done through Abraham. Aaron was a prophet, but it wasn't through Aaron that any signs and wonders were done. But Moses was a prophet, and surrounding him were all these signs and wonders. And what do, what's the significance of those signs and wonders? Signs and wonders are associated with a greater kingdom breaking in. Right? So, so God demonstrated that his, through those signs and wonders, God was demonstrating through the prophet Moses that his kingdom is greater than the kingdom of Pharaoh. Right? Through the exodus that was accomplished through Moses. And at the end of Deuteronomy, literally the very last words of Deuteronomy, Moses didn't write these words because by the end of Deuteronomy, Moses is dead. So somebody else took up the mantle and, and finished the book of, of Deuteronomy. And whoever was writing that, maybe Joshua, he said this, uh, that for a time, and, and, and perhaps while Joshua was alive, God had not raised up another prophet like Moses in that way. Specifically, not just bearing the words of God, but the signs and wonders that had been done through him to prefigure the greater kingdom. Here's the last words of Deuteronomy. And there has not arisen a, a, a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him, for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants, to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. So Moses is pivotal. I mean, nobody said of Abraham or Aaron, well, nobody like them has been, been come since, you know, but of Moses. 
He was unique. He prefigured a greater prophet through the signs and wonders worked through him. He prefigured a greater kingdom to such an extent that whoever, perhaps Joshua, was finishing this had to reflect there's not been anybody since him like that. Right? He's a great prophet. You keep reading the Bible. Um, there are other smaller figures that are, that, that are given the label prophet, but the next major prophet on the scene would, have this, would not have this um, aspect of signs and wonders, but is, is important nevertheless, and somebody over here mentioned it earlier, and that is Samuel. Samuel. Remember what, what I just said about why about the significance of signs and wonders performed through Moses. What, what, did that, what did those signs and wonders, they're called signs, okay? What are they signifying? What are, these, what are these miracles? Why are they called signs? What are they signifying? They're signifying that there is a greater kingdom with greater power than any, any kingdom on this earth. The signs and wonders demonstrated that. Well, the next prophet on the scene is Samuel. And when you read him, the story of Samuel... He is a prophet. He's called a prophet. He doesn't have these signs and wonders signifying that in his ministry, but, there is, but he still signifies that greater kingdom because not only is Samuel a prophet, he's also a judge. And not only that, but he's a judge who anoints kings. He anoints kings. Who's the most famous king that Samuel anointed? David. David. And so in that way, Samuel the prophet, not just bearing the words of God, but anointing kings. And not just anointing kings, anointing David himself. The very Davidic king that would also prefigure the, a greater Davidic king, Jesus. Jesus who would be a descendant of David. In that way, Samuel prefigured the coming Christ. Bore the words of God in his day and prefigured the coming Christ. Still moving at light speed through the Old Testament. The, ne the next major high point in, in prophetic ministry in the Old Testament. Anybody want to take a stab at it? Elijah and Elisha. Elijah and Elisha. Man, those are good stories. Good stories. When did they prophesy? So, all of those before that, that I've just mentioned, Abraham, Aaron, Moses, Samuel, they were all uh, prophesying in Israel when it was a united kingdom, unified kingdom leading up to the high point of David and Solomon. But after Solomon, decadence set in, dis disobedience set in, and the kingdom split between north and south. The northern kingdom was called Israel. That was the northern ten tribes of the twelve. And the, the other two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, kept the name Judah. Okay, So we're just laying out the land here, the history and the land. Northern kingdom is Israel. Southern kingdom is Judah. Jerusalem is in the southern kingdom. So the temple was in the southern kingdom. So the northern kingdom built their own places of worship and went far afield of God's ways and God's laws. And, and Elijah and Elisha were prophesying in that northern kingdom that was going way far away from the Lord, building their own places of worship, worshiping Baal, and as the kings of Israel grew increasingly wicked, increasingly godless, most prominently King Ahab, right? You can read about that in 1 Kings 17, about Elijah uh, in the prophets of Baal. You know, God, 
you, you see if your God can call down fire. I'll, I'll call on my God and we'll see who and which one answers, you know. Do you see what that is? Whose kingdom is, 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 is greater, right? Two, two noteworthy aspects about Elijah and Elisha. One I just hinted at. The first one, though, is the fact that, that in that northern kingdom, when people were walking in disobedience, the kings were walking in disobedience, everyone was wayward. Elijah and Elisha, first of all, were sent to call people back to obedience, to call the people back to faithful obedience to the law. That's going to be a major emphasis in the minor prophets. When we study them this summer, that's going to be one major aspect of their prophetic ministry, is calling the people of God back to obedience and back to faithfulness to God. I say that just as a foreshadowing of what's going to be important all summer long. Prophets call people back to obedience. But the other thing about Elijah and Elisha was that they had not seen this since the days of Moses, but now all of a sudden you have the reemergence of signs and wonders in the prophetic ministries of Elijah and Elisha. Elijah did some amazing things. Elisha almost did more. I mean, it's, it's amazing the, 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 the signs and wonders that God did through the prophetic ministries of Elijah and Elisha. Why did, the, why did all of a sudden, when, when signs and wonders had been so unique to the, to the prophetic ministry of Moses and God wanting to demonstrate the authority of His kingdom over the, the, the great earthly king of Israel, uh, kingdom of Egypt. Nobody had worked signs and wonders like that since. Why now all of a sudden do those reemerge in Elijah and Elisha? Why? Because remember where they're remember where and when they're prophesying. They're prophesying in the northern kingdom that's going away. And it looks like, it looks like, if you just look at Israel, it looks like the kingdom of God is failing. Doesn't it? Because they're walking in disobedience. They're worshiping false gods. It looks like the kingdom of God is failing, but God demonstrates through Elijah and Elisha and through the signs and wonders that they perform through His power that His kingdom is still sovereign. And His kingdom is not weak at all. Again, you see that in 1 Kings 17 through the prophets of Baal. Elijah and Elisha pointed forward to Christ um, in that way, not only by being the very voice of God to the people, but through the signs and wonders that God performed through them. Signs and wonders, by the way, that would not appear again until Jesus and the apostles. Think about that. Signs and wonders don't just appear scattered throughout the Bible. They don't. Signs and wonders appear at three major junctures in the Bible. They, they appear in Moses and the Exodus. They appear during the days of Elijah and Elisha. And they don't appear again until Jesus and the apostles. Only those three time periods. And what those three time periods do is mark major shifts in the unfolding of God's plan of redemption. They're like wake-up calls to say something big is happening. Something big is happening. And they lead to Christ, which is why when Christ finally comes, there is a proliferation of signs and wonders. That's the reason, by the way, that I chose, I could have chosen a lot of passages. The reason why I chose this, these, this opening passage of Romans as a jumping off point for this overview, because how, how he says very clearly, like we already noted in verses 1 and 2, that he was set apart for the gospel of God, this gospel which he promised beforehand through his prophets. 
in the Holy Scriptures. God was foreshadowing through all, through all of these prophets, even as early as Abraham and Aaron and Moses and Samuel and Elijah and Elisha, through what they said and the signs and wonders they did, foreshadowing the coming of Christ through His prophets. But that foreshadowing, the specificity, the specificity of that foreshadowing ramps up through the emergence in history of what are called the writing prophets. The writing prophets. A lot of times when people just say, the prophets, that's who they're thinking about. The writing prophets. But really, they, the writing prophets are kind of the, the last phase. They're the last phase of um, the, uh, the prophetic ministry in the Old Testament. The writing prophets. These are the, the, the writing prophets are the prophets that we categorize as major and minor. In the, in the scriptures based on the length of the books that they wrote. And these, remember I told you that, that uh, after David and Solomon, the kingdom of Israel split between north and south, Israel and Judah? These minor, the, all these writing prophets, major and minor, they were prophesying in, in different places. Some were in the northern, most of them, many of them were in the northern kingdom. Some of them were in the southern kingdom. Just know your Old Testament history. After they split Israel and Judah... Remember, Israel was walking in disobedience, wicked kings, wicked people in disobedience to the Lord. Elijah and Elisha called them back to obedience. They didn't listen. They didn't repent. And so God judged them first. They fell to the Assyrians and were carried away into captivity by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. 722 B.C. The kingdom of Judah, a little bit better, right? They had some better kings and, and, and in some ways walked in greater obedience, but, but disobedience eventually overtook them. They fell to the Babylonians in 586 B.C., 586. Those are important dates. You might want to remember those just to have an idea so you're not just reading the prophets blind when you're reading them. And these... These, uh, these major and minor writing prophets were prophesying both in the north in Israel and the south in Judah, both in the days leading up to those exiles. Some were prophesying in the north during that time of exile. And God sent more prophets after that time of exile, with Malachi being the last prophet. Let me just give you a run-through of the timeline of these writing prophets. I'm, I'm talking about a run-through, so gird your loins. Um, the, the, the writing prophets more than likely began with Joel. That's why we're going to study Joel next Sunday. More than likely began with Joel around 800 years before Christ in, in Judah, which was the southern kingdom. Joel probably first prophesying in the southern kingdom of Judah around 800 years before Christ. Around, around 50 or 60 years after that. So 740, 750-ish you had a proliferation of prophets in the northern kingdom. They were Amos and Hosea and Jonah. I, some, some don't exactly know when Jonah lived. I, I take Jonah to be in this group. Remember, who was, who was uh, Jonah preaching to? He went to Nineveh, which was where? Assyria. Oh, by the way, who was about to conquer the, the northern kingdom? Right? So... 
Amos, Hosea, and Jonah were about 50 or 60 years after Joel. They're in the northern. He was in the southern. Well, just before, if you think, think, we're thinking parallel time periods, by the way, what's happening in the north, what's happening in the south. Um, just, before that, just before that happened in the, in the north, just before they fell to Assyria in 722, over here in Judah, there were a couple of prophets prophesying uh, in the southern kingdom. That would be Isaiah and Micah. Isaiah, by the way, you think about it, Isaiah and Micah were contemporaries. <laughs> they might have known each other, you know, band of brothers, both prophesying. And, uh, and, and so they're, they're prophesying in the south, Isaiah and Micah. And Judah, after the prophetic ministries of Isaiah and Micah in the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, Judah would not hear from another prophet in their land for another 150 years. God... Well, by the way, during that 150 years of silence in Judah, over here in the north, um, during that 150 years, while Israel was in exile to the Assyrians, um, and then later the Babylonians, uh, God sent them word through Nahum and Daniel and Obadiah. Nahum, Daniel, and Obadiah. Around 600 B.C., just before the southern kingdom of Judah was defeated by the Babylonians and went into exile and captivity, God sent a wave of prophets, a wave of prophets um, in Habakkuk and Zephaniah in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. That's a wave of them. Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, just one after another, minor and major, in the southern kingdom, right before they fell to the Babylonians. They were preaching repentance, but repentance didn't come. And Judah fell under the judgment of God. When the, when the think, moving through the timeline of the Old Testament, when, so it was the Assyrians first, then it was the Babylonians, but then somebody overtook both of them, the Babylonians overtook the Assyrians, then somebody else overtook the Babylonians, that is, the Persians. And their king began to rule over the people of God. Their king, King Cyrus, made a proclamation around 539 to the Jews that said, you can go home. 539, you can go home. In fact, it's very cool to see God's sovereign hand at work because the way the book of Ezra begins is it says the Lord stirred up the heart of King Cyrus to make a proclamation to fulfill the word that he had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah had prophesied 70 years and then you go home. God stirred up his heart and he fulfilled God's word. Jews, you can go back home and you can rebuild Jerusalem. You can rebuild the temple. That those places that had been destroyed by the Assyrians and Babylonians. And it was during that time of rebuilding, rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the walls, it was during that time, post-exile, that God sent two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. Haggai and Zechariah. Both prophesying around 530, 520 B.C. And there was one last prophet who brought the word of the Lord to the people who had returned from exile 
and that was Malachi, about 450 years before Christ, about 450 years B.C., Malachi. And after Malachi prophesied, there would be a period of just over 400 years of absolute silence from God. No word. God would not bring another word to His people until the emergence of... Huh? No, not quite. Huh? John the Baptist. John the Baptist, who came to announce the the appearance of Christ. And who, as it turned out, bore a striking resemblance to who? Elijah. Dressed the same, ate the same kind of food. And whose appearing was prophesied by who? Malachi. And in fact, Malachi said, Elijah will come to you. It was prophesied, it was fulfilled in John the Baptist. So the prophets were a major part of the unfolding of God's redemptive plan that led to the coming of Christ. They were, they were a long, almost unbroken chain of words from the Lord to prepare the way for the Savior to come. And just to, So just to say a bit about that. Why were they sent and what did they say? Why were they sent? We've already said a bit about that. Which was, as, as Paul says here in Romans, to set forth and to promise the gospel of God ahead of time. Here's a couple of things that I want to say about that. Here's a couple of things that I want to say about their, their prophesying the, the, the gospel of God ahead of time. The first thing I want to say about their prophesying the gospel ahead of time is it wasn't always perfectly clear. It wasn't always perfectly clear. I mean, it's easy in hindsight. We have the whole New Testament. Like we have the finished picture. It's easy for us to look back and say, oh, there it is. But if that's all you have, it's not on its own always perfectly clear. And that's because at times the prophets themselves did not see it clearly. Um, In fact, like when one classic example is when Isaiah prophesies about the day of the Lord, what he sees is happening all at once. I'll say more about this in just a minute. When the New Testament comes, no, it doesn't happen at once. It happens in two stages, the first and second coming of Christ. What Isaiah saw, he didn't see clearly. And Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He, the Spirit of Christ, predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. They, they weren't always just crystal clear in their own mind. John the Baptist, in fact, at one point, you know this, somewhat doubted. Are you the one? I mean, I think I understand the Scriptures, but are you the one? Jesus simply quoted to him from the, the uh, prophet Isaiah, and he didn't doubt anymore. In fact, y'all take a second, hold your place here, and just turn over to... Well, no, you don't have to turn. I I think it's on the screen. I'll have it on the screen. In Luke chapter 7, there's this, yeah, there it is. There's this uh, story of this account with John the Baptist. And it says, the disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord saying, Are you the one to come or shall we look for another? And when the men had had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you. 
saying, Are you the one who is to come, or who, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed. Oh, there it is. And the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Basically quoting a string of uh, passages from Isaiah. And I love, um, I, did you notice in verse 21, by the way, when it says, are you the one or shall we look for another? And Jesus having these passages in mind, these prophetic passages in Isaiah that might not have been clear on their own, what does he do in verse 21? It says, I've got it underlined there. In that hour. He healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. So, are you the one? Come with me, guys. Hang on just a second. Blind, seeing, sick, healed. I mean, just like, and they're like, whoa, 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 boom, 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 boom. And he says, this is what Isaiah said. Now go tell him what you just saw. And then Isaiah just didn't, I mean, uh, John didn't doubt it anymore. Uh, they just literally saw it. it it's like, he, uh, boom, boom, boom. That's amazing. Anyway. So it wasn't always clear. On its own, it wasn't always clear. Jesus came to make it clearer than it otherwise would. He came to fulfill. Um, but here's the second thing. Even though it wasn't always perfectly clear, some places are clear enough that Jesus himself said people were without excuse for not recognizing him when he came. They were, not, they were without excuse. Jesus told the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And he said in Luke 16, 31, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. That's pretty clear. The message of the prophets pointing to Christ is clear enough to recognize Jesus when he came. And that's precisely, by the way, the indictment that Stephen made against the Jewish rulers right before they stoned him to death. In Acts chapter 7, in Acts chapter 7, he said, and he was a bold man, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those, those prophets, who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. They are at fault. They are guilty because they should have recognized him. And rather than betraying him, worship him. But how did they do that? How did they announce beforehand the coming of the righteous one? Well, that's what I hope to spend all summer talking about. How did they announce beforehand the coming of the righteous one? But for now, I'll just kind of close with this. Um... Know that the prophets, all the prophets, everyone in that list I made, especially the writing prophets, especially the minor prophets, not only, like Elijah and Elisha demonstrated, called the people back to obedience, either before they went into exile, while they were in exile, after they were in exile, calling the people back to obedience, which they couldn't do. They couldn't pulled themselves up by their own moral bootstraps and obeyed. We're all fallen, we're all sinful by nature and fallen uh, in, our, in our hearts. We can't 
be obedient on our own. But that's the whole point. That's Paul's whole point in Galatians 4. It's to say, the law was a tutor to lead us to Christ. It says obey, you can't obey, you know you're guilty, you know you need a Savior, and it points you to the Savior. That's one way that they, they, they preach the gospel beforehand, is just by holding up to us God's righteous standard and our guilt. You need a Savior, He's coming. But they also foretold that that Savior was coming. And they referred to His his, his coming as the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a huge theme in the prophets. And I already mentioned that uh, God, they said on that day he would bring to per- perfect fulfillment all that had for, uh, been, been, been uh, promised. It wouldn't unfold exactly as they thought it might all at once, but come in two stages, but come it would. And I love how the way that they say, the, the, the way they describe what Jesus would bring, they use images in the Old Testament and, and say that a greater version of those things is coming. So, he, so for example, they, they, just to summarize all that the prophets say, they, they basically say that when Christ come, when the Savior came, He would establish a new nation. Think about what Peter says, but you're a holy nation, a royal priesthood. A new nation through a new exodus, Luke 9, 31. This exodus that he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. A new nation through a new exodus into a new promised land under a new covenant into a, or as a new Jerusalem with a new temple in a new kingdom under a new Davidic king. All this, this imagery, what they saw as one day of the Lord, when He would both save His people and judge His, pe- his enemies, would unfold in two stages. He would come to save His people at the first coming and will come again to judge those who rebel. We'll close with a beautiful passage from the last words of the prophet Micah. It's a beautiful passage. Who is a God like you, Micah says, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Let's pray.